0: We are going to get into the Word of God. So, First Corinthians chapter three, if you have your Bibles. If you use the Bible app, uh, look up live events, and you can interact with the notes in that as well. Let's just open in prayer, shall we, Church? Lord, we just come to you. We uh, acknowledge you at the centre. We acknowledge your presence in this place, Jesus, and we just want to give you the time and space to speak into our lives today. We want to be enriched by what you have to say to us. We want to know and interact with your Holy Spirit today. We want to know you more. We want to know this life of faith more out of this morning. So we give you this time. We ask you to to grow us, to challenge us, to stir us, to to be at work in our lives today, as we engage with your word. We thank you for all that you will do in us today in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in a series in the Book of One Corinthians, first Corinthians and uh, it's the intention is to cover both letters because the story of the Corinthian church is a pretty full-on one when you look at the whole thing. And we're working on the, the uh, working title of Redefining Radical. And I believe today's conclusion will actually start to challenge us about some radical things about how to live out Christian life. And, um, and so uh, they shouldn't be. But they are, I believe, things that we really need to be looking at. We, we think of radicalism as the extremes of, of our behaviours and stuff like that, whereas the original understanding of radical was to look at the roots, the, the, the innermost part of it, starting from the inside out. And uh, so we're going to look at some radical things today. and uh, look at chap- We're going to look at the whole of chapter 3, and we're going to break it up into a few spots. And uh, we're going to look at the first eight verses first. I know some of this was covered last week, but I'm just going to read it as a whole so we can get the flow of the passage here. So uh, we'll start at verse one and we'll read together today. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready, you are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? Okay, that's where we left off last week. Now let's pick it up. After all, what is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labour. We'll pause there for one moment. We'll come back to that. Keep your thumb in your Bibles, and uh, we'll get into this. In modern society, in modern social and political settings, there's been some fields of study and, and uh, understanding of sociology and um, in the 1860s there was the discovery or the de- definition of a leadership model called charismatic leadership or charismatic authority. It has nothing to do with the charismatic gifts. It's actually a secular viewpoint about the charisma of a person, the drawing power of an individual. It was defined back then as a movement that rested on devotion to the exceptional sanctity, heroism, or exemplary character of an individual person. A a charismatic leader would then at times become the subject of what is known as a cult of personality. Sometimes this happened because the charismatic leader let things get to their head, but quite often it was about those that followed them assigning them to cult status. Some of the modern dictatorships fit the bill like this. Adolf Hitler rose to power because of his heroism and his charisma. He was a a war hero and and he was actually well regarded, won by landslide on the charismatic um, way that he was. We know how evil he was and yet people consider to revere, continue to revere him in certain circles. The guy running North Korea right now, every time he gets up to speak, it's almost like a worship service. And if you want my honest opinion, I believe this is a thing in the modern Western church as well. There's elements of this going on. We shouldn't be all that, you look at it like, wow, what? No, 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 we shouldn't be that shocked about it. Because the church-based cult of personality has been a problem in church life since at least 51 AD. We are reading about the early stages of one here. It happened in this case not because the apostles demanded it, but because the church was not letting go of its carnality and treating leaders in such a way. The Roman Empire set this precedent. Important people were worshipped. A Roman had to make an annual acknowledgement of the deity of the emperor. The Corinthian way of life fostered this as well. You went there to make a name for yourself, to make yourself great, to be the kingpin to feather your own nest, to increase in wealth, to seek greatness. And in that process, some would become patrons and they would develop clients and these clients would only exist to put wind in the patron's sails. Many of those clients encountered Paul and Apollos and became Christians. Some of the patrons did too. There's every chance that the patron-client arrangement suddenly got a bit muddy because they were coexisting in church circles. It's actually quite possible that patrons actually were the first house church leaders. There is all sorts of evidence in these first three chapters of 1 Corinthians that This was making church life difficult. And it was preventing everybody from growing in Christ the way they should. They'd become fixated on seemingly charismatic leaders, patrons, true to them, and the chance of garnering prestige by association. Clients knew no other way but to hitch their wagon to the leader they were told to embrace. And as this fixation on human leadership remained, Jesus was pushed to the background and discipleship was brought to a complete standstill. The Corinthian church at this time when Paul is writing is more concerned with being an expression of its leaders than its Lord. That's a dangerous place to be. And Paul knows it. That's why he's writing a correction to it here today. In verse 5, Paul makes a very clear effort to completely demote himself and his peers in the work of God. He explains that they are not leaders in the way Corinth understands it. But they are diaconos, servants, waiters, butlers, janitors. Not forced like slaves, but volunteers for Christ. Not to be looked at as people to elevate or magnify, but people who are there to assist them, to serve them, to work alongside them. Paul is echoing Jesus here. Matthew twenty-three, eleven. Jesus said, The greatest among you will be your servant. A church leader is a servant who is positioned to facilitate others giving their full attention to the master. We do what we do because it's our, what our common master, yours and mine, wants us to do. In Paul's words, one will plant and another will water. In other words, the tasks of ministry that we do, none are less ordained. There is partnership, not rivalry. And there's going to be a reward for a leader's service. And ultimately, growth happens because the Holy Spirit is at work at us, not because some really good person, some good guru taught us. The Spirit, they pointed us to the Spirit. They facilitated facilitated us knowing Jesus better. And anyone in leadership, anyone who was influential in any way in the church told here to know their place I'm told to know mine in the kingdom it's in the background while Jesus holds the floor and real Christian maturity will emerge out of that anyway that's a few thoughts let's keep reading in a verse we'll start at verse 9 now keep going for we are co-workers in God's service you are God's field God's building by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each of you, each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day, capital D, will bring it to light. That's, 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 a, that's a proper noun for something there. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even only, though only as one escaping through the flames. If I look like I've done 12 rounds with Lionel Rose this morning, it's because I've grappled with this scripture all week. This is a wrestle, this one, to get through. Paul begins to describe us in verse 9 as a building. God's building. Something that God is erecting. There is a specific blueprint in mind. Paul has a final product in mind. And he's not disclosing it here, but he will in a few verses' time. But we know that God has a plan for it, and God has put in place a firm foundation. He ordains one firm foundation and it is built for his purpose. Paul, in this passage, sees himself as the layer of that foundation in the city of Corinth. He's a church planter. It is his gift, primary gifting. He's an apostle. He goes and he plants churches around the place. That's what he understands himself to be doing. And then when, as soon as it was practical to do so, he left the work in the hands of faithful people. In the case of Corinth, it was after 18 months. How's that for a discipleship process? In eighteen months you could leave the, ha- the leave the place. The foundation, if we we're to take in all of what we've read so far is the gospel crossed crucified. The foundation has to be good and there is no other greater foundation than that. If Paul waltzed into Corinth and peddled a heap of self-help, or philosophy, or prosperity teaching, or offered a cheaper version of Jesus—a blood-free coup—I just make that connection with God. You'll be right. All the vague ambiguities. Then he could not have made that statement with any sense of honesty. I laid a foundation, not just left a pile of dirt behind. Instead, Paul came in with minimal fanfare. He offered what would be the most offensive religious message of the day to a bunch of people who had never heard this before and then called everybody to leave all they knew and follow this one God, King and Messiah. It was folly to some, it was a stumbling block to others, but he was faithful to what he knew to be true because it was the only foundation he knew. They say in today's setting that two-thirds of a modern construction process is the work of the foundation. This little hole in the ground that kind of looks like the super pit from Kalgoorlie, this used to be a single-storey, notorious shopping area called Top Ride City. When I was a minister in Sydney, I lived a couple, about 100 metres from this. Before it was flattened. Before it was flattened, it was actually quite a dangerous place to go shopping. But then they flattened it, poured in millions of dollars. It stayed like that for quite some time. It remained a hole in the ground for many years while they were doing the reconstruction. Then some pillars seemed to emerge. A lot of concrete yeah, concrete trucks in and out. A lot of Rio Bar going in. And even though it still looked like a hole in the ground with a few concrete pillars up, signs started going up. Top right city, new and improved, opening soon. I was right next to a bus stop. Everyone's laughing their head off. It's a hole in the ground. This thing's been a hole in the ground for years. Nothing but concrete trucks. Annoying the neighbours with jackhammers. But then, within a few months of that, it was up. Six stories plus a high rise apartment building. Three stories below ground, two car park layers underground. Plus a heap above. That was 2009 and it's still standing. Almost all of the construction work was stuff people weren't seeing. It was the foundations. You get that right and then the rest falls into place really well. Paul says here that the bulk of everything we're to know as believers is the foundational truth. Christ crucified, Jesus Christ is the foundation of it all. And if we keep preaching that, the church will stand forever. But then Paul moves on and says, there are those who are entrusted with the foundation and given scope to build further. One may build on this foundation. There's a reason he's going there. Once we're in Christ, things are supposed to be different. Once we're in Christ, we know that things are different. We start having more and more questions. We know that we have a a life to live out until Christ returns. We've got lives to navigate. We've got old theologies and ideologies and philosophies to filter out. We've got a Holy Spirit to learn how to interact with. We've got new behaviors, new habits to learn. We've got a new family to learn how to coexist with. We've got a new kingdom to anticipate, demonstrate and announce. These are the things that we continue to build on once the foundation is done. Once we've learnt that we're in Christ, we then work, okay, how do I build on that? With those things. That's why we come to church each week. We come here every week knowing that Jesus died for us. We understand Christ crucified, but we also understand that there's more to know, right? Right? So we come and we come, and you are here today, hopefully, because you want to interact with gold, silver, precious stones of what is being built on top of what Jesus we know in Jesus. These are the things in mind when Paul speaks about the building materials in verse 12. You've got things of worth and things of little value. It's just two groups. You've got things that hold up to the elements and things that do not. You've got things that a fire would refine and things that a fire would consume. You've got things that you would use to build a basic lodging for your own needs. And then you've got things that you might use to build something a little bit more sacred, such as a temple. And we have a warning here from Paul for leaders to choose carefully what they are going to use to build with. Why? Because it is going to come under the deepest scrutiny of Christ. In that final day, capital D, day, that one day, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an event. Our Lord that we know and love now will be our judge. We can choose the lesser things wood, the hay, the straw. And in the case of Corinth, Paul is referring to human wisdom. He's referring to petty allegiances. He's referring to the cult of personality. He's referring to the refusal to grow up in Christ. Or we can build with the greater things. The things learned and taught from a position of service and humility the things that are reflecting God's wisdom, even if the world considers us a fool for doing so. All that we do and teach and influence and value, according to Paul, is going to be exposed for what it is in fire. Is fire something to be taken literally? Like, is there like, okay, enter the joy of the Lord, but just go through that furnace first? Frankly, I'm not sure. But I'll tell you something else. Revelation 1.14, when we're introduced to Christ dwelling amongst the candlesticks, Jesus looking dressed for war, dressed for action, Our Lord who brought us with eyes blazing of fire. God's eyes, the eyes of Christ, are going to burn straight through me on that day. Whether it's a furnace or whether it's just one look from Christ. Whether it's flames or pain or not. We must not trivialise what Paul is saying here. There's something really serious being spoken of here. Is this before or after we decide the heaven or health stuff? And I believe the short answer is after. Whatever is left of us enters our eternal reward. This is not a universalist teaching. This is people who are in Christ. In verse 15 we read that some may smell a bit charred as they come in. Mm, you mean in a barbecue? No, just Jesus. <laughs> Is there different rewards for different believers? Hmm? Apparently so, to some degree. We don't know exactly how this works. There's no scriptural support for higher levels or hierarchy. But scripture does, on a number of fronts, speak of both varying rewards and varying ways of giving account. In this passage, the one entering scorched is said to have suffered loss. This is a term that was used to speak of, dodgy, of a dodgy builder being fined for poor workmanship. So, as I consider all that, I conclude and I plead with you to understand that although we have full confidence, we will have full confidence on that day because of who we are in Christ. All right, we, Because we know Christ, now we have nothing to fear in eternity. But there is also a sobering reminder that Jesus, with his piercing eyes of fire, is going to look long and hard at the lives of faith we lived out. And I do believe there's going to be some big surprises in that process. I read this passage and I understand that my position as a pastor is more than a vote in a church meeting. All that I do and say, everything I influence over a coffee, everything I do with this thing in my hand. The way I live my life and demonstrate it to others and ask people to replicate that. The things I say in my house church. My very behaviour in my own time. It's going to be exposed to judgment. The God of all creation, the Christ who purchased the church with his blood is going to ask me to give an account. Sadly, some ministers are going to see their whole life's work go up in flames. I pray that's not the case with me. And since we're all Baptists, This gets a little bit more ominous, church. Because we believe that every member of the church is a minister. The church in Corinth was a house network. Any leader probably only had an influence of about 50 people or so. We're all entrusted with something. We all have the foundation of Christ and we're all building on that. Someone somewhere looks up to us and our faith, and wants to, and is, is actually measuring or or determining their own faith by what they do by looking at us. Someone is being taught by you either verbally or not. Someone is taking their Christian cues from you. Your families, your kids, your co-workers. We're all going to have something to account for in a similar way, church. With all that in mind, Paul shows us the priorities to live out here. Let's keep reading from verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows what the thoughts of the, that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. As we anticipate the day, make some deliberate choices. We can live as the house of men, build with the cheaper materials, or we can be, do the best thing with our lives and do the best with all that has been entrusted to us. We can be And we can be co-labourers and builders in God's temple. When he wrote temple, this is the concept that was in mind. It hadn't been flattened yet. It was still standing. The temple. Outsiders looking in understood that was the temple. Gigantic walls, walls locations that you could be and other places you can't be. If you were not a Jew, there was a pretty big area you could hand in, the size of a few football fields. You could hang out there, but there was a sign saying, do not cross this line. You could go further in, you could go up some steps, you can go into a gate, you can hang into a courtyard, and then for some of you, your gender would stop you at that point. The men would go further. And then there was a point where the men could go only so far, and because they weren't priests, they couldn't go any further either. And then you had that really central inner sanctum part, the tallest part in the centre. That's the place where the veil was torn. The scholars point out to me that the concept of temple that Paul is writing about is not the complex, but the centre part. So we're not simply calling out to the community to merely look at us and admire our splendour and stay on the outside looking in. When we become the temple that God has in mind as a church, We are inviting people to come close and personally engaging with God who is immediately within us, with us as a royal priesthood together, where God is in our midst and that the people that come into contact with us don't have to remain three layers outside the place but are offered access to God the same way we know him. In the context of this passage, the opposite of building is destroying. And it's quite sobering to realise that our faith expression is doing one or the other. If we persist in the way of man, we're getting further and further away from Christ to the point that says that God will destroy that person. Our carnality and our division and our factions and our humanistic wisdom will all do damage to what God is doing in our midst. Those things are not built on the foundation of Christ, those things are on the shaky foundation of men. But our rejection of those things will lead us to things that stand for eternity. Paul calls us to be what the world considers a fool. It doesn't get any clearer than that. People outside of what we know consider this rather foolish. Just get up. this week, Ricky Gervais, you know, the comedian, was interviewed about atheism because he's a bit staunch supporter of that and likes to do it in a funny way. On Facebook, he actually invited a conversation with that, and people were savage one way or the other on it, ripping into Christians. How can they believe this nonsense? It's foolish. The world can still consider Christianity a foolish thing. And yet we take on the wisdom of God. Still pursue the wisdom of God. Stop drostling for position. Stop allowing the worldly way of doing relationships Getting into the way the church operates. That was getting really savage, and we'll see that in, in a few chapters' time in, Ch- in Corinth. Outside the Corinthian church walls, patronage and clientele was the way things worked. Your clientele worked for you to make you great. But inside, the ones respected as leaders were the ones who served. If it's true that some of the patrons became house church leaders, then they had to completely switch gears in the way they viewed Christian influence. In these last few verses, Paul states that the the leaders they claim to belong to, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter, I am of Christ. This was not the case at all. Instead, Paul goes as far as to reckon that he and his companions belonged to them. It's the other way around. So it wasn't about elevating a leader and making them greater. It was about them making the person following them then greater. Paul says that all that he had and all that he knew in Christ was at their service so that anyone in the church follow that lead and go and do likewise. And this was ultimately because we all belong to Christ and he holds nothing back from us. And that's the bottom line. So as we get the band up, let me call you to some action, some thinking that some Christians might call radical in all this. First one, no other foundation than Christ. Everything must be about Jesus. This should be a no-brainer. But how easy is it to lose sight of keeping Jesus at the base of this thing? How quickly can we suddenly get, can one thing happen and all of a sudden it's about me? What, where am I going to fit in all this? The bottom line is where does Jesus want us to be? What does Jesus want you to do? How does he want you to respond? We get into what about me really fast. I'm good at focusing on me very well and I'm not alone. But where does Jesus fit and what is he saying? The amount of times I meet with Christians who are very consumed with their problems and I go what is Jesus saying and they go I don't know did you ask him no I'm not sure where the church is going right now I don't know, like the direction of this or that or oh, what's going on blah, you know this change or something is Jesus speaking to you in this time no I'm not asking what is Jesus saying Jesus at the centre of everything And everything, we hold each other accountable for this, everything is built on the foundation of Christ. Second, there is scope and a genuine need for things to be built on that foundation. But the things that are built must be things of worth to the kingdom. Everything that is built on Christ, anything we claim to do in His name is going to be judged accordingly. And that should be... Motivating, at least somewhat. This is not a heaven or hell debate, but a case of Jesus taking a really good look at what we've done to affect eternity. Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount to store up treasure in heaven, to live with an eye on eternal things. In that final day, Jesus is going to show us just how much we achieved in that regard. Some things will stand, some things will not. Some things will go up in flames, others will be refined. Some will be deeply surprised at what Jesus considers valuable. Some of you who think I'm only doing menial tasks are going to find something really refined on the other side of eternity. Some of us who went for the flashiest option might find it doesn't really hold up to a flame on the other side. Third, the purpose of leadership is not to elevate people, not to build an audience, not to have a platform, not to amass people to ourself. Leadership is a position of service and being alongside people, not above them. This is a radical shift that I believe needs to take place in the modern church. We have people jostling in the church world. I attended a Christian conference this year, earlier this year, and pastors are trying to jostle for position to be able to get to the, the more senior uh, uh, figures in that setting and try to sidle up alongside them and, and be known to them and get them on Twitter and connect up. A few years ago, a Bible college held an event to promote their internship process with the head of that department boasting how awesome it is to have young, hopeful leaders carry your bags. If you send them to our college, you'll get people who work for you and we'll give them an academic credit for their work for you. They had a speaker for that event and Jen and I drove him there. He was a bit clearly unsettled through all this introduction stuff. And when he got up to speak, he's an American guy, very big guy, and he was very forceful in his personality, but he just eyeballs them all and goes, In the internship program I run in the States, we co-labor with our interns. They don't work for us, we work with and for them. Culture shift right there. Radical one. And finally, I say this in a setting like this, not to highlight my job description, but to speak to all of us. We are all ministers. We all have a responsibility to keep all that we do founded in Christ. We all have a responsibility to build well. We all will give an account for the influence we wielded. We all have an environment where we are called to serve others in the name of Jesus. We all have a responsibility to keep ourselves free of the colder personality. We are all ministers and this applies to us all. So as we come to a close, we're going to come to a point of worship. If Jesus wants to speak to you, this is where I get out the way and point you to him. We're all about the foundation of Christ. We're all about learning to serve, not be served. And we're going to be people of influence who we will give an account, but I pray that will be a joyous encounter for all of us. Where all that we do is refined in fire. That God's piercing eyes looks at us and it's, it's just gold. I pray that is the journey we can all pursue as we get on with this life of faith in Jesus' name. Let's pray.